two mission teams went out rather than one, and later on in the scripture the problem got solved. We talked about being all things to all men, that uh, St. Paul actually had Timothy circumcised. Now, during the break, one of our sisters very discreetly asked a question that she did not want to ask publicly. And when you hear the question, you'll realize why. And that is, how did they know whether Timothy was circumcised <laughs> or not? And there's, <laughs> there's a really fun passage. You know, every, I know everyone will turn here to Galatians chapter 2. And St. Paul is talking about Titus. Now, Titus is the one to whom the book of Titus was written. He ultimately was sent to Crete. He became the first bishop of Crete to set the work in order. And uh, at one point, Titus was with him in his missionary endeavors. And in Galatians 2, 3, St. Paul says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And in this case, he was not going to bend to the Judaizers. And so Titus was not circumcised. And he said, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth. You know what a stealth is. It's a plane that lands and it doesn't, nobody picks it up on radar. In other words, it came in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield uh, with submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And most biblical scholars, believe they take that at face value. They spied out the liberty. In other words, they checked out the men's room to see whether or not they were uh, circumcised. And of course, in those days, the men's room was not closed off like it is today. So it, you know, it didn't take any great imagination to find out who was and who wasn't. And that's how they knew. So a little extra insight there into Scripture, which most of you didn't care about anyway. <laughs> okay, so we talked about taking your problems to the church, that even in contention, God can be glorified. We need to be all things to all men wherever possible, not compromising the faith ever, but rather making the fullness of the gospel available to people within the context of their culture and their understanding. Uh, we talked about sometimes God changes even our missionary plans. Uh, we talked about this demonic opposition that they faced in chapter 16. And then we finished up with God is glorified even in our suffering. And had not Paul and Silas ended up in the slammer, the Philippian jailer and his family would never have known salvation. And uh, the, the more you read, you, you sense how the Lord is in control of his church. Jesus uh, said, on this rock, I will build my church. I remember when Bishop Basil was consecrated in Wichita years ago. I had the joy of being part of that party that went to bear witness to that. And that night at the banquet following the, the consecration to the Episcopate, uh, Metropolitan Audi, who is just an angelic man, he's the Bishop of Beirut, Lebanon. Many of you have met him, those of you that are clergy. Uh, the kind of guy you just say, I'd follow this man anywhere. He stood up at the banquet that night and he gave a charge to Bishop Basil, and I'll never forget it, when he said, Your Grace, the most important thing for you to remember as a bishop is that this is not your church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And you get that on every page of the book of Acts. When one calamity after another happens, when this change of plans happens, when the opposition rises up, uh, whatever the situation is, you just have this, this mystic sense that through it all, God is in control. And of course, that didn't end with Acts chapter 10, 28. That continues on in the church today. And it's so important, the next time we have problems here at St. John's, or if you're from Seattle, or wherever you're from, uh, there will be problems. And how important to remember that God is in control and that Christ still is head of the church as he always has been and he always will be. Okay, now, an interesting section, and that starts in Acts 16, verse 35. St. Paul gets a little political in Acts 16, 35. And when it was day, now he's just, they've just seen the conversion of the Philippian jailer. When it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, 
let these men go. Okay, the, the whole prison has been rocked. You know, jailhouse rock didn't start with Elvis. It started here in Acts 16. And now they want, they want Paul and Silas out of there. I mean, you know, here the whole prison has been destroyed. So they sent the, uh, the officers saying, let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to him, nothing doing. They have beaten us openly. We're uncondemned Romans. We're Roman citizens. And they have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No way, Jose. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. <laughs> they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. We just thought these guys were run-of-the-mill Jews who'd become Christians. These guys are citizens of Rome. They just transgressed, if you will, their first century civil rights. So then they, the magistrates, uh, came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them, please depart from this city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. In other words, Paul stuck their noses in it. He made them come and usher them out. Sometimes you need to use your Roman citizenship. Uh, some of you know I serve as a national chaplain of Sigma Alpha Epsilon, which was my college fraternity. It's the largest Greek letter uh, fraternity in America. And uh, through a series of circumstances, I was asked to serve as chaplain, which is a marvelous opportunity to take the faith outside the walls of the church. I just flew from Chicago two days ago, where I spent a week with the, the leaders of the fraternity. We, we handpick uh, about 525 undergraduate leaders. Most of these guys are sophomores and juniors. They're the ones that will be the officers of the fraternity in the next one or two years. So this is the cream of the crop of every chapter in America, and there's about 220 chapters on uh, our major colleges and universities across America. And, uh, of course, as an Orthodox priest, I go in. I, they want a service every Sunday. I do the Tipica service, which is our Orthodox service. And, of course, if uh, you know, the Tipica is essentially the divine liturgy minus uh, the anaphora and the Eucharist. It's the service you do when there are non-Orthodox present. And uh, it's a marvelous opportunity. Every, every year I get to preach the gospel, and it's, it's a, really a, a wonderful open door. Okay, one day, some years ago, a Jewish kid walked up to me. And he said, I'm really offended at the way you talk about Jesus Christ when this fraternity stands for diversity. And uh, so I played my Roman citizenship card. I said, my friend, you've got to understand something. Sigma Alpha Epsilon was founded by a Southern Baptist preacher and his close Christian friends. The fact is we are diversified. We're not a church. But the foundation of this thing is Christian. And you have entered into a, a fraternity that has religious roots different from your own. Now, I, I said, if I were to join Sigma Alpha Mu, which is the Jewish fraternity, we call them the Sammies at the University of Minnesota, Sigma Alpha Mu. If I were to join Sigma Alpha Mu and walk in there and start saying the Nicene Creed and uh, praying the Lord's Prayer, you'd have a problem with me, wouldn't you? He said, yeah. Why? Well, because culturally, your fraternity is Jewish. You, being a Jew, joined a fraternity that's culturally Christian, and therefore, you got no gripe. And he said, you know what? You're right. And that was the end of the conversation. Sometimes you play your Roman citizenship. And uh, sometimes St. Paul, rather than simply acquiescing, said, you know what? No, you're not getting away with this. He did that as he dealt out discipline in the churches. You know, when he got to Corinth, there was a guy sleeping with his uh, father's wife, evidently his stepmother. And Paul immediately dealt with the problem. And it says he turned him over to Satan, that somehow, though he'd be buffeted in the flesh, that his soul might be saved. That happened in 1 Corinthians. You read 2 Corinthians, 
And this guy has repented, and he's back in the church again. So sometimes we accommodate, and we say, okay, I'm not going to make an issue of that. Other times we say, you know what, I'm drawing the line right here, and we're not going to go there. And St. Paul did that this day as he'd been tossed into the slammer. He made the magistrates come and let him out. So it's a, it's a nice little side lesson for us as Christians. And you know, in all of this stuff, we were talking over the break about this whole thing of, of uh, being all things to all men. As Orthodox, we look to the bishops to call the shots. I can't repeat that enough. If I'm in doubt about anything, I write Metropolitan Philip. I report to him in my role as a chairman of the Department of Missions and Evangelism. And I say, Sayadna, what do you want me to do? And then I get direction. As I mentioned, I'm going to Beirut here, and God willing, in a couple months to teach. I wrote and asked him, could I have your blessing to raise some money to bring them a gift? And he declined. He said, you know, I give them a lot of money every year. I don't want you to do that. Perfect. Fine. And then I said, my former boss, you know, Sam Moore, the head of uh, Thomas Nelson, grew up in Lebanon as an Orthodox Christian. And, of course, since then, he's become active in Protestant circles. And uh, the second question I asked Sayedin in that same letter is, do you see any problem with me inviting Sam Moore to go with me? And I got an, a, a loud affirmative on that. And I've just found if I, ask, if I ask and get direction, then I'm on solid ground. And uh, I just I encourage you, you know, when, when in doubt, don't make decisions on your own. Don't do things that somehow come on as weird in the church or out of step. Father John Braun tells a great story. Uh, when he was in seminary, you know, he's always been a radical. And uh, that's what we love about him. You know, when he preaches, he shouts. And uh, if anything, he'll overstate the case. That's what makes him what he is. Well, one day the dean called him in. He said it was a turning point in his life. And he said, John... The boundaries here at North Park Seminary are between here and here. And the dean said, I can't always tell you where here and here is, but your problem is you're here. You get between here and here, and you'll do just fine. And he said it was, it was life-changing for him. In orthodoxy, there are boundaries between here and here. And there seems to be two schools of thought. One is to be here in the center. The other is let's push the envelope as far as we can to see how much wiggle room there is. I want to tell you it's that crowd that gets in trouble with the bishop. Just like your kids. What do you look for in your children? Somebody that sees how far out they can go and not get nailed? Or the kid that comes and says, Dad or Mom, just tell me, what do you want me to do? And, you know, the answer is obvious. Check with the bishop. Check with your priest. Don't go out and do harebrained things under the guise of Christian liberty. Ask. Ask for direction. And like a loving parent, you'll be given direction. Uh, you know, it, it seems to take us years as, as kids in a family to realize that mom and dad love me more than I love myself. And I don't necessarily agree with them all the time, but the fact is if we're going to keep peace and we're going to keep unity in the home, if the kid will just do as he's told, it'll go a huge way toward that end. And beloved, the same is true in the church. Do what the bishop says. Do what Father guides you to do, and the thing will go along great. And that's a lesson that we learn here over and over again on the pages of the book of Acts. Okay, next, we'll move into uh, chapter 17. And I've entitled this, There's Nothing Wrong with Methods. You don't have to do it differently every time. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica, 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I've been to, they call it modern day Thessaloniki. I've been there. It's a wonderful city. We were there in 1985 when we tried to see the patriarch and were turned down. One of the spiritual high points for me was Thessaloniki. Um, there's a spot where the Church of St. Paul is built up on a hill, up where the, where the archbishop lives. Remember that? We went up there, and in the church, on the solia, there's a star. And that star is the spot where St. Paul stood when he preached to the Thessalonians during his two visits there in the early 50s, 51 and 52. And I remember one by one, each of us, we didn't plan it, we just did it. We each stood on that spot and recommitted our lives to the preaching of the gospel. It was just one of those spiritual little Pentecosts for me uh, to be able to be in a place where my hero, uh, St. Paul, had been. And so here they end up in Thessaloniki, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This was probably 51 or 52 A.D. Then Paul, as his custom was, as his method was, as his practice was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He went back into the synagogue, just like he's done over and over and over again. There's nothing wrong with doing it repeatedly. And he went in and explained to them the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. You remember I talked a couple sessions ago about my college roommate, the guy that I had talked to and talked to and talked to and finally quit talking, and that's when he committed his life to the Lord. Uh, about, mm, gee, 14 years ago, we were all back in Minneapolis for our high school reunion, and he and his wife came. And um, On Saturday at the re reunion, I asked if they'd like to go to church with us Sunday morning. I said, I don't think you've ever been to an Orthodox church, and of course they never had. So we took him to St. Mary's OCA Cathedral in Minneapolis. And at that time, he was this big muckety-muck in the world of advertising. So uh, I said to him, Rich, I want you to do me a market survey. As you experience the Orthodox Church this morning, do me an analysis. Tell me what our problems are in, in well, for lack of a better, in marketing or presenting this church to modern America. So uh, after the service, we were standing out in the street talking. Father Ted Wojcik, who was back then the dean of the cathedral, came up, and we all had a wonderful conversation. And then I said to Rich, okay, now my market survey. He said, you got three problems. <laughs> I love it. Bingo, he was ready. Number one, it's too Catholic. It may be Orthodox, but by George, it looks Roman Catholic, and that's a problem if you're trying to reach America, especially evangelicals. Number two, it's too old. It doesn't look up to date. And number three, it's too foreign. It's not American. And then he said something, and I, I'll finish that, those three up. Then he said, we've learned something in advertising. <clears throat> and he said, that is, one exposure is not going to get it done. He said, you'll notice most ads on television is the same ad over and over and over again. And he said, surveys show that not until you see something three times is it going to make an impact on you. How many days did Paul spend in the synagogue? Three weeks in a row he was in the synagogue. Now, I don't think St. Paul knew Marlin marketing methods. But the fact is, usually one shot won't get it done. And Rich said, don't invite them to church just once. He said, ask them for a month of Sundays. I'll never forget it. You want a month of Sundays. You want them there at least three or four times because it's not until the third time that it's going to sink in. I think he's right. By the way, on the objections, it's too Catholic. I see that as a positive. You see, for the first thousand years, the church was one. It was called the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
Catholic means that which is believed by all men everywhere. In other words, the one universal faith. I think it's a plus. But we, we certainly are quick to say that 500 years before Martin Luther ever thought about it, we the Orthodox said no to the excesses of Rome. And the fact is, we're not under Rome, but we certainly do bear some of the resemblances of the modern-day Catholic Church. I think it's a great opportunity to explain it myself. Too old, I think that's a huge plus. You know, Flip Wilson also had the church of what's happening now. Remember that? <laughs> I don't want the church of what's happening now. I want the church founded by the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles on the day of Pentecost. Baby, that's 2,000 years old any way you cut it. We need to keep building on that foundation, that faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. I think Rich was right. It does look old, but that's a positive. Thirdly, it's too foreign. St. Mary's, Minneapolis, every syllable is in English. And I think the foreignness that he saw there wasn't just the Russian influence, though it's there. Remember, Abraham went out looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. That city was so foreign that not only wasn't present there geographically, it was a heavenly city. I think the foreignness that he picked up on that day was the fact this thing is kingdom. This isn't just earth going on. This is kingdom. This is heaven happening before our very eyes. It's not supposed to look like modern-day America. It's supposed to look like heaven. So I think he was right in his assessment, except I think what he saw as problems, frankly, they're solutions. There is one faith forever delivered to the saints. It's the Catholic faith. And uh, it is old, and it doesn't look like modern America. It looks like heaven. So if he's right on his assessment, use that as a plus. Use it as a plus. And then remember his advice, the same thing St. Paul did here in Acts 17, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scripture. One shot probably is not going to do it. Ask them to come back and to come back and to come back. Okay, so through that we learn that there's nothing wrong with methods and there's nothing wrong with repetition. And then the next item is so important for us, and that is we need to know our faith from the Scriptures. To be honest with you, that's why we've busted our heads to get the Orthodox Study Bible out. We need, in America especially, to know it from the Scriptures. America is still a Bible country. When the president's sworn in every four years, you know, he doesn't place his hand on Playboy or Life or the Koran. He places it on the Holy Scriptures. And even though America has largely forgotten the Scriptures, Nonetheless, scriptural appeal is still strong here. You know, chapter and verse is still really important. And it behooves us as Orthodox Christians to know our faith out of the scripture. Let's start in verse 10 of chapter 17. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, guess what they did? They went into the synagogue of the Jews. Are you getting tired of this? This is so important. Go first to the faithful and then to the unbelievers. They went first to the people of God. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and those who were more fair-minded than those in Thessaloniki, in that they in Berea received the word with all readiness, and they searched out the scriptures daily, to find out whether the things that Paul and Silas were preaching were so. Every evangelical worth his or her salt that you meet will stack up what you say against their knowledge of the Scripture. And even though their knowledge or their interpretation of the Scripture might be wrong, nonetheless, you really need to know our faith from the Scripture. And I would encourage you that in your parish, if there's a Bible study going I beg you to be there. Uh, have Don give you his catalog of lectures. Listen to the people that teach the scriptures on those tapes that he has. 
and there are a lot of them. Father Tom Hopko is wonderful in the scriptures. Uh, Father Gordon, Father John, I mean, you know the guys that are gifted in teaching the Bible. We need to know our faith out of the scripture, and that, that was certainly true in Berea. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, and prominent women as well as men. But when the, and here it happens again, but when the Jews from Thessaloniki learned that the word of God was preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Not only does Paul use the same methods over and over again, his enemies use the same methods over and over again. And so you've got a reenactment of what happened in Philippi going on right here in Thessaloniki. And immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go uh, to the sea, but both Silas and, Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed as well. And so it was ultimately the troublemakers from Thessaloniki that got Paul transported on from Berea, where they were very receptive to him, now to Athens, Greece. Now here's one of the hilarious things. Are there any Greek Orthodox here today? Okay, and I'd say exactly the same thing if there were. Every now and then, say you're on vacation, and you hit a town, and you look in the phone book, and there's a Greek Orthodox church right near the hotel. So you go there. This happens to me many times a year. I'm invited to speak there. And at the coffee hour, after the liturgy, someone will come up and say, now, Father, are, are you Greek Orthodox? They check out my eyes and my kind of blonde hair, and, you know, this doesn't compute. And, and sometimes if I'm, I'm a smart aleck, I'll say, well, no, I'm part of the Swedish Orthodox Church. But <laughs> I'll say, no, you know, I, we, we are in full communion with the Greek Church, but our patriarch lives in the ancient city of Damascus. We're under the patriarch of Antioch. And then you get this deer-in-the-headlights look. <laughs> What's that? There are a lot of Orthodox people today that don't know anything about the other jurisdictions. When we went to Romania, we were a total anomaly to them over there. They did not know that Orthodoxy, many of them, had ever spread to America, much less that we weren't Romanian Orthodox. And so we found ourselves explaining over and over again who we were. We're, we're from the Patriarchate of Antioch. In Acts chapter 11, it's where they were first called Christians. In Acts chapter 13, it was from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were sent out to begin the missionary expansion of the church. So sometimes then, in a Greek parish, they'll say, well, now Antioch, now is that legitimate as orthodox? And, and my, my trump card is when I say, yeah, Antioch is the church that brought orthodoxy to Greece. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens here. St. Paul sent out from Antioch in Acts chapter 17. He is the one, together with his cohorts, Timothy and Silas, who bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bring orthodoxy to Greece. What a, what a wonderful thing. Yet it was through the Arabs that the Greeks heard the gospel, at least people that lived in modern day, uh, one of the modern day Arabic nations. By the way, today in all of orthodoxy, guess what percentage of the whole thing is Greek? Anybody? Ten. Ten percent of worldwide orthodoxy is Greek. Ninety percent is non-Greek. And we got to bring the gospel to Greece. Okay, let's read on. Now, while Paul waited for them, that is for Timothy and Silas, his spirit was provoked. It, it waited for him at Athens, at the Hilton there, Father Gordon. His spirit was provoked with, within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. It looked hopeless. Therefore, St. Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. There we go again, right in downtown Athens. He didn't go to St. Nicholas first. He went to the synagogue there. And with the Gentile worshipers 
and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Uh, Father David, it was our last stop in Romania before we went back to fly out a couple of days later out of Bucharest. I don't even remember the name of the city. But we got there and we stayed at a monastery <clears throat> the night that we arrived and then the meeting in the, in the uh, cathedral was the next evening at 6 o'clock. We got in about 10 o'clock and the monks through our interpreter told us the priest here has really dropped the ball. There's been no preparation. Nobody knows you're coming. And we said, well, what should we do? And they said, well, we'll do up posters and we'll put them around the city but you guys need to do something to, to attract the people or there'll be no one there tomorrow night. So, of course, both Father David and I are these old-timey, you know, flea-bitten, street-preaching guys that uh, I threw Campus Crusade, he threw, um, not Youth with a Mission, but what's that, Dave Wilkerson's group. What is it? Um, huh? Teen Challenge. I think he had worked with that group. So both of us had done street preaching before. So we decided that while the young monks are out there putting up all these posters, that we'd go out and talk to people on the street. So each of us had an interpreter. He had a deacon there that was able to interpret for him. And I had Father Dan Sushu with me who grew up in Romania and, of course, who's now here in the U.S. So we went out and engaged people on the streets. And by the way, it was really funny. Guess who tore down our posters? The Pentecostals and the Baptists were out there tearing down our posters. So uh, I, finally about noon I said to Father David, you know what, this is onesie and twosie. This isn't going to get it done. There's got to be a marketplace. So the, our, uh, the deacon knew where the marketplace was, and it actually was right across the street from the cathedral. And it was huge, maybe two or three square blocks. So uh, we went to the marketplace and just said, you know, 6 o'clock cathedral, Americans. And uh, during, during the afternoon, we, we found five or six tough guys who had ridden in on motorcycles. And it, it was just like the U.S., you know, a DA haircut, black hair, and uh, leather jackets, and the whole bit of them was hotter than blazes out there, and they still had those leather jackets on. And, uh, you know, Father David had run with this crowd before his conversion. So, I mean, he hit it off right away with them. And uh, so we said 6 o'clock cathedral. And it was so fun that night that the front row was, it was this motorcycle crew. We assumed they were Orthodox. They were crossing themselves. <laughs> but uh, they were Father David's kind of guys. Anyway, 750 people showed up. I made a mistake that night. I gave the homily. And I said to them, how many of you came because we met you in the marketplace? And hands would go up kind of like this all over the room. And the priest came up to me right on the spot, and I'm glad he did. He said, you know, in Romania, we, we never ask people to make a visible or outward expression. He said, after 40 years of communism, you never raise your hands for anything. And that was a, a lesson well learned that night. But we assumed that the vast majority of them were there because we hit the streets. St. Paul, when he went out to preach the gospel, hit the streets. And by the way, a, a beautiful uh, addendum to that story is that night we were on national television. It was the only night in all of our three weeks there that the TV station showed up. Now in Romania, when you're on TV, you're on TV. You, you do not channel flick, at least that back in 82 or 92 you didn't. There's one station. And so when you're on, you're on. And they recorded the whole thing that night on TV. Can you imagine if we hadn't hit the marketplace and there were 20 people scattered throughout the cathedral, the downer that would have been? It would have never been broadcast. But after we left the country, we were told over and over again that they repeated and repeated and repeated. It was a vesper service with preaching. And Father David gave us testimony as to how he became a Christian and how he became Orthodox. And I don't remember what I preached on that night, but I preached the gospel. And it was shown repeatedly on Romanian television. All these things work together. St. Paul hit the marketplace. When we went to Albania last summer, <clears throat> the Albanian church was absolutely destroyed by the communists. 
They didn't get just us. They flattened the mosques. They flattened the Roman Catholic churches. And everybody has had to rebuild. And so we went in and taught the seminarians how to do street evangelism. And they resisted. They said, well, that's Protestant. And I had to take them back into the scripture. I said, okay, guys, let's talk about it. Where did Jesus perform his first miracle? You know, in a cathedral somewhere? No, at a wedding reception. Where did he meet St. Fotini? At a well on a hot summer day. Where did he meet the blind men outside of Jericho? In a ditch. Where did he meet Zacchaeus? In a tree. Where did he meet Matthew? At the tax table. Where did he preach his most famous sermon? In a synagogue on a mountainside. In fact, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. We had to hammer it over and over and over again. I said, if the churches were still up, if the liturgy was still being served, you might be able to get away with hanging a shingle out there and say, join us at 10 a.m. But those days are over in Albania. We've got to start from scratch. And so we trained them for three days. I even taught them how to meet people, how to shake hands, how to introduce yourself, how to look people in the eye when you talk with them instead of looking down. We taught them how to hand out invitations to the meetings that we had. And by the time the three days were up, they couldn't wait to get out there. It was a marked change. You know, we've gotten, again, we've just gotten soft in our day. And uh, sometimes we just need to get out there down and dirty. As John Madden says, we need to get mud on our uniforms again and get out there where the people are. And by the way, Albania was incredible. We did, the first thing we did was campus evangelism in the city of Tirana, which is the capital. We went to the University of Tirana. We, were, of course, were limited in when we could go just simply by the days we were there. And the days, the two days we went to the university, it was finals. Talk about all the bad timing, finals. So we said, what are we going to do? Let's bill it as a study break. Take a one-hour study break. And in the two meetings we had, we had 200 kids out to each meeting on a campus of 5,000 students during finals. And by the way, the first day, the lights in the auditorium went out. You know, at any given time, the, the electricity goes. So he said, okay, we're going to move into the hall of the ad building. There were huge windows in there, and we had the meeting in the hall. And I screamed my head off. There was no microphone. But what a thrill to get out there where the people are. And uh, the students were blown away that 200 people would come out to hear about Jesus Christ during finals. And then we went to a city called Skodra, which is in the northern part of the uh, country. Half of it historically was Christian, Catholic, and Orthodox. The other half, Muslim. And uh, the kids had invitations. We had about 40 kids, the seminarians, fanned out to hand these things out. We sent them out two by two, and I'm convinced the reason the Lord did it is because we're chicken to go alone. I think it was purely pragmatism. So they went out two by two, engaged people in conversation, passed out the invitations, and I said to Father Luke, you know, it was the same feeling I had that day in Romania. This isn't going to get it done. I said, are there TV stations? He said, there are three of them. I said, well, let's go and see if we can get interviewed on TV. And, of course, they'd never done anything like that before. You know, the, the scriptures say you have not because you ask not. And I said, Father, the worst they can tell us is no. So we went. And uh, I said, let's go to the biggest station first, because if they say yes at the big station, slam dunk, we're on the next two. So we went to the first station. The manager came out. Of course, Father Luke was the interpreter. And we said... Uh, Father Peter's here from America. That's a big deal in Eastern Europe. Uh, they're pro-American over there. And uh, he said he's available to be interviewed. And the man said, well, the lady that does our interviews is off today. But he said, let me phone her and see if she can come in. Don't you love the way God opens doors? So he called her up. 30 minutes later, she was there. Came in a real pretty red-headed lady, markedly not a Christian. She asked us all the right stuff. Who is Jesus Christ? What do you say when you talk with people about God? You know, how, how do people experience salvation? I mean, we couldn't have paid her to ask better questions. And it was broadcast over and over and over. 
And we also then, that was Tuesday, and we said Wednesday night at the cathedral at 6 o'clock, we'll be speaking to a citywide meeting. The cathedral was a hulk. I mean, they had built back, basically, it's like Webster's apartment over there. You know, the, the, the cement blocks are up. And uh, the cement blocks were up, the roof was on, the three steps to the altar was there, no altar, no, it was all cement on the inside. So they hauled in a whole bunch of, of folding chairs, and we felt it's way better to get them in the cathedral so they know where it is, they've been through the door, rather than to hold the meeting at a neutral spot. So after we were on the first TV program, it was a slam dunk to get on the next two. And one of the next two came and filled the evangelism service that night, the Wednesday night, in the cathedral. And that was broadcast over and over and over again. There were two testimonies, one by a guy from Oregon, an American, the other by a guy from, from Albania who had just been a wild man who had been converted to Christ, an Orthodox seminarian. And then I preached the gospel, and my, my sermon was, Who is Jesus Christ? We had the two leaders of the mosque on the front row, the Catholic Archbishop, Father Luke had gone to see him. He sent 14 nuns to come and hear us that night. It was standing room only. The kids, the kids had never done anything like this before. I mean, under communism, you know, everything's under wraps. And thank God they had the boldness to get out on the streets. And the people they contacted and the people that saw us on TV were the people that came. Uh, after the service that night, <clears throat> a restaurant owner who's Orthodox hosted a dinner, and it was a delicacy. It was carp, deep-fried carp. But if you were a VIP, like a priest's wife or a priest, you got the head of the carp. So I sit down at the table, here's this old dead carp, you know, looking up at me. <laughs> she ate everything, brains and all. I just ate the little meat in the back and, and kind of left the rest for the cat. But um, after dinner, they, they had kind of a, a, an Albanian Muzak station on, and those kids were so excited to have, to have been able to share Christ with those hundreds of people in that yet-to-be-finished cathedral that after dinner they got up and line danced through the cafe, and I just sat there in tears. Uh, dancing in the spirit. You know, David did that. And... Uh, what a joy to see lives changed. And Father Luke said they'll never be the same again. They'll no longer keep it to themselves. And in, uh, in Athens, St. Paul hit the marketplace. Don't be afraid to do public evangelism. You say, well, I've never done it before. Well, you just, in a way, you just kind of set your mind to do it. And uh, you're willing to be a fool if that's what it takes. Uh, I'd love to see something like that here. Every time I come home from one of these trips, by the way, I'll report to the Metropolitan. He'll say, why don't you do something like this here? And the fact is, we need to. When we were in Romania, we were there on the feast of the, of the uh, Dormition, which, of course, is coming up. And we had two teams. The team, my team at Rohia, at the monastery at Rohia, we had 35,000 people show up. And uh, we preached and taught to that many. I've never spoken to that many people in my life. Father Gregory Rogers and Father John Reeves, who are the other team, had 100,000 at their monastery. Father Gregory said, I stood up to preach. I could not see to the end of the crowd. And I, I really do hope one day that kind of thing will happen here for us as Orthodox. Maybe we can hit a city like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia where there's just scads of Orthodox. I saw your map out there with the pins in the cities. And what if they mobilized and came together, say, on a Sunday night for a, a big meeting, combined the choir, had a couple testimonies and somebody to preach the gospel, and everybody invite their friends, get thousands out. I think one day we're going to see that in America. And they saw it in the book of Acts, and St. Paul experienced it in the city of Athens. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Kind of harks back to my 
college buddy, doesn't it? Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They'd never heard that before. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all of the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell of or to hear of some new thing. And, of course, the Scripture says there is no new thing under the sun. And who he was preaching, beloved, was the ancient of days. But to them it was new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, him I proclaim to you. And he preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's how the gospel got to Greece. And um, the Greeks weren't always orthodox. The other lesson we learn is don't be afraid of the intellectuals. Uh, you know, you check, you know, don't check my grade transcript, okay? In college, C's, B's. I heard somebody say the other day the A students teach and the B students work for the C students. <laughs> it's true. Isn't it true? The A students teach, the B students work for the C students. You don't need to be an intellectual to reach intellectuals. You need to be a servant of God who can humbly go and talk to them about what Jesus Christ has done for you. We live in a very experientially oriented age. Just the fact that God has changed your life is banner headline news in most of this culture. You don't need to know all of the, you know, apologetic answers or all of the reference works or what Father said what about whom. Basically, you need to come and talk about what Christ has done to change your life. And by the way, the way you learn these things is by getting out there and talking. Those of you that teach Sunday school know that very well. The way you learn the faith is by teaching it to others. And I spent, as you have, many Saturday nights up late knowing I was on deck the next morning. Sometimes that's the best way to learn. So don't be afraid of the evangelicals or the, or the intellectuals. Now, let me skip down to chapter 18 real quickly. Verses 1 to 11. Now he's in Corinth. Now we're getting into the big leagues. Ask God for key families. Back in Campus Crusade, one of the first things we did, didn't we? We looked for key families, key lay people, who I call them people gatherers. They were people that had a, a large circle of friends, people that had leadership ability and were able to influence other people for the faith. And St. Paul was no different. Look here in, in chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, in other words, they were tent makers and Paul was a tent maker, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue, get it? He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul that night by a vision, and he said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, 
and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And it says that he continued there for a year and a half teaching the word of God to the Corinthians. What good news to hear for God to say, I've got many people in this city. I think that's true basically of every city in the world. I think there are many people in, in Anchorage that would become Orthodox if only they had heard. I think there are many people in my hometown, Minneapolis, yet to become Orthodox. I think there's a lot of people in Santa Barbara that still haven't heard about the church that would like to be Orthodox if they heard. I think we can operate on that assumption because it's God that goes before us. And St. Paul had learned this over and over and over again. So he, he found key people. Here's the leader of the synagogue. Here's Aquila and Priscilla who were willing to stick their necks out. And he ended up preaching in that city for a year and a half. Well, let me skip down to 1818, and I'll finish with that. And I've got that entitled, <clears throat> entitled, Don't Miss the Feast Days. You know, sometimes as Orthodox, we gear ourselves just to be there on Sunday morning, and if Father Mark's really lucky, we'll show up for Vespers on Saturday night. But feast days, you know what? I just don't have the time. Listen to St. Paul. So Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila went with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow. And that refers back to a passage I'm not going to take the time to cover. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast, which, by the way, was the precursor of Easter. It was the feast of the Passover coming up in Jerusalem. I will keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples there. Paul could have stayed and preached the gospel in Ephesus, but he said, you know what, I need to get back for the feast. And I'd really encourage you to, uh, obviously everybody goes to Pascha, but uh, we've got a feast day coming up on Tuesday. We've got another one coming up on the 15th. Some of the great pearls and the treasures of our faith are in these feast days. And evangelist though he was, he put worshiping on a feast day even ahead of preaching the gospel. People, that's guts ball. And I think if we're going to be fully orthodox, we have got to be committed to, in as much as possible, experience the fullness of what the church has to offer. Well, that's Paul in Europe. And uh, there's some incredible lessons here. And uh, would to God we heed them and practice them. Well, it's time, so we'll uh, pull together now. We'll see you at Vespers and again tomorrow morning, and then we'll pick up tomorrow and the remainder of our institute together. Father Mark? And he speaks to us those same words, just as straight and just as bluntly. This turns some things upside down. You know, we have been trained to think that there is sanctity in family life. It's not where sanctity is. There's sanctity of life but there's not anything necessarily salvific about family life. People can be saved without a family. People who have left their family can be saved. As a matter of fact, we hear some hard words from him this morning. 
those who leave father and mother for my sake, those who leave lands for my sake, those who leave children for my sake, will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a very popular saying. We all know it. We've all said it at one time or another as if it were a God-given fact that blood is thicker than water. It's a lie, an absolute lie. There's nothing thicker in that sense. No relationship that is tighter than the relationship fashioned and created by the waters of the baptismal font. Not by birth. Not by birth at all. We're called to honor our parents, of course. And parents are instructed not to scandalize your children. But the only relationship, the only one that will save us is our own personal, not familial, not congregational, but personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved. This is hard for us because we live in believing families, so we don't see how this can possibly be. But not long ago, brothers and sisters, in Orthodox lands, it was children who turned in their parents for being believers. It was husbands who would rat on their wives, and she ended up in a gulag someplace. You see, when the pressure is applied to men, mankind, human beings, we are not always as strong as we would want to be. Teachers, people who are supposed to be men and women of trust to our young people, turned in children. In Russia, there's a very famous story under the days of, from the days of the communist persecution of the church of children showing up in school on Monday of Bright Week, the day after Pascha, and the teacher noticed wax on their shoes that they could only have gotten if they were taken to church from their Paschal candles that had dripped on their shoes. Not only did those children end up in prison camps, but the parents who took them to church ended up in prison camps. You know, when pressure is applied to us, some are not as strong as we think, and that's where blood is not thicker than water. It's not. What well, did it were, but it's not true. It's not true. Too many spouses have ratted on their spouse. Too many parents have turned in children. Too many children have turned in parents. Water, baptismal water, the water by which we become not sons and daughters of earthly parents, but sons and daughters of a heavenly king, the relationship which we share with each other because we all have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is created by the waters of the baptismal font. And water, that water is thicker than any human blood. Today we honor those, this first Sunday after the great feast of Pentecost, those people who lived out our Lord's hard teaching. This is the Sunday of all saints. And if you but look at our calendar, if you just open any book, The Lives of the Saints, 
If you just listen to the Synaxaria, the lives of the saints that are read to us every day in our holy temples, you notice that the great, great majority of the saints, not all, but the vast majority are martyrs. People who did stand strong when the pressure was applied some of whom were turned in by their own blood relatives to authorities as being Christian. And when the pressure was applied to them, rather than renouncing Christ as they were denounced by their blood relatives, they stood and bore witness to Jesus Christ. They did not deny him and they paid the ultimate earthly price by shedding their blood for him. Our church is like a...